electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now, last call, back in business. Stocks returning to records, but maybe don't grab the confetti just yet. Coinbase shares moving big right now. What has investors cheering? High praise for Elon Musk, a famed entrepreneur going bullish on a comeback for X. Late to the party, a major Wall Street bank waking up to one of the hottest stocks out there. Utterly mind-blowing, you gotta see this. New, completely fake, AI-generated videos, and we're gonna show a few of them to you this is going to make your night in buckets of cash. Iowa's Caitlin Clark shooting for college sports history. And wait till you see the money flying around it. All that and more over the hour. So post up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All that and more coming up on our hour. But first up on Last Call, some in Congress wanting to take on shrinkflation. Democratic Senators Elizabeth Warren, Tammy Baldwin, Bob Casey and more reintroducing the Price Gouging Prevention Act. It was originally introduced in the House two years ago. It alleges that corporations have raised prices in order to increase profits while blaming inflation and supply chain issues. Democrats also calling out shrinkflation, where companies shrink the size of their packaging while charging you the same amount. You might have seen President Biden weigh in on this ahead of the Super Bowl. Sports drinks bottles are smaller. A bag of chips has fewer chips, but they're still charging it just as much. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. It's a ripoff. Some companies are trying to pull a fast one by shrinking the products little by little and hoping you won't notice. Give me a break. So is it true that big companies are trying to actually make more money post-pandemic? Well, listen, it's frankly, it's impossible to know overall. There are hundreds of thousands of companies, big and small, across America. But we did look at two of the biggest public companies in the respective sector. Procter & Gamble, which makes all kinds of household goods, and Coca-Cola. They make soda, stuff like that. All right. We compared fiscal year 2019, that is pre-pandemic, of course, gross margins, to 2023 margins. PG&E's margins actually declined a bit. Coca-Cola did as well compared to 2019. Of course, these are just a couple of examples of no doubt, and let's be clear, there are no doubt many big bad actors out there. But this bill seeks to stop the practice by powering the FTC and states to enforce a ban against, quote, grossly excessive price increases, regardless of a seller's position on a supply chain. There's also one little added detail in this bill. It would give an extra $1 billion to the Federal Trade Commission to fund the effort to fight price hikes. If you ever wondered why half the richest counties in America are those surrounding Washington, D.C., that's probably part of it. Anyway, 
Joining us now to talk more about it is former North Dakota Senator and University of Chicago Institute of Politics Director Heidi Heitkamp, an economic analyst at the American Enterprise Institute, James Petakoukas. Both are CNBC contributors. The uh, Senator Heitkamp, the first time this bill was introduced was a couple months before the 2022 midterms. This bill coming out now, maybe it'll pass, maybe not. How much of this is real? How much of this is just optics? Because inflation is a critical issue heading into the election. I I don't think for Elizabeth and for these senators, this is optics. Now, will this bill ever pass? The answer is no, it will not. But it does give a platform for talking about what are all the causes of inflation. And I think it's interesting. You showed, you know, that the snack companies and, and, you know, if those facts are real, this bill wouldn't apply to those companies. I mean, we look at the American, uh, uh, the uh, Economic Policy Institute did a study and showed, according to their analysis, that 50% of the increase in prices actually went to corporate profitability. And so this is a bill that provides a vehicle to talk about the root causes of inflation. You could agree with it or disagree with it. It clearly is going to be part of the political discussion. And, I, you know, honestly, Jimmy, uh, with and I get why the Democrats and the president want to try to do something about it. I think the GOP would probably do the exact same thing. Inflation is probably a purple thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're blue or red, you're still paying these prices. And the problem is, unless we crash the economy or have serious deflation, which is a bad thing, I don't think the pre-pandemic prices are ever coming back. No, and that is really the tough spot uh, this administration is in politically because we had a very uh, sharp and quick surge in inflation. People have very clear memories of, like that things cost a lot more than they did in 2019. That number uh, is not going down. People don't look at disinflation and deflation the same way. So what do you do? Uh, you try to throw whatever onto the wall and see what will stick. Maybe shrinkflation will stick and it will marginally make this uh, less of a terrible issue for the Biden administration. Uh, it's a political issue. It is a, not an economic issue. It is not really a public policy issue. I don't think there's any expectation this would pass. Uh, economics about supply and demand. Who's forcing us to pay these shrinkflation prices? Nobody's forcing us to. It's supply and demand. That's not politics. What politics is yeah. shrinkflation. I think that's it. I mean, you know, Senator, if if I get it, it's an impossible issue. It's going to take time. I think these prices are here to stay. If there's a bag of chips that is X dollars, it contains X number of chips, and there's a competitor that has more chips in it for the same dollar, the consumer will find that out. The consumer will migrate to that better bargain unless they just really love that one bag of chips, right? And I'm just not sure... I want some, you know, unknown, unnamed autocrats at the FTC determining what is, quote, excessive. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get your point. I think that it's a little weird to be using snack uh, companies because I think we're all seeing the OSEPIC 
a result. There's fewer and fewer. We've seen decrease in profitability for snack companies. And so they've got a whole different set of challenges. And maybe they're responding by saying, we can keep the price the same and actually lower the cost of the input. Well, let's, let's take a look at what happens overall with profitability. You showed the numbers for Coca-Cola. Every company is going to look differently. But I think there were companies that had a huge advantage coming out of the pandemic built up, pent up demand. There was a supply chain problem uh, that broke and the profitability went up. And so that's a story to tell about what happened with inflation during this time period. And they have legitimate economists who are also saying the same thing. Probably some of them University of Chicago trained, Senator, as we know. I mean, Jimmy, I think it's first off again, I don't want to make it political about one party. If the, if the Republicans were in charge right now, they'd be panicking the same way. They'd be doing the exact same thing. I don't know if they'd be making the same sort of odd videos saying as chip prices have gone up. It's called shrinkflation, folks. I mean, this is not a new concept, by the way. Shrinkflation has been going on for about 100 years. A Hershey bar used to cost a nickel. That said, if I, if I was in office or trying to get into office or get reelected, I would focus on housing shortages. Why is the rent so damn high? Why is there so few houses out there? Why, why is car insurance up 40%? Why is home insurance unavailable in sub-states? I mean, rather than focus on a nickel extra profit that Pepsi may make from a bag of Frito-Lays, go after the fact that you can't find a house, and if you do, you're going to be massively overpaying. That's what I would go after, but that's also why I'm sitting here and uh, not running Housing's a great issue. I mean, listen, if we're going to talk about shrinkflation, maybe a little shrinkflation for government spending and government debt. As long as we're going to focus on shrinkflation. The FTC, Jimmy, back. gets an extra billion dollars in this bill. A bill I remember, <laughs> I remember when a billion was just a million. Yeah, uh, is, is that shrinkflation? I'm not sure. <laughs> I agree with you, Brian. I think that that housing costs, insurance costs, these are the things that are that are making people insecure about the future. It's not a bag of chips. The price of a bag of chips is not making the American family insecure about their future. But all great, all great books and movies, Jimmy. Institutions. Come on. All great books and movies, Jimmy, have a protagonist and an antagonist. And (laughs) you got to make somebody the boogeyman. Right. Or the checks mix man or whatever we might call it. Yes. Uh, Jimmy and Senator Heidkamp. Good discussion there, folks. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Folks, it's called shrinkflation. All right. Up next, we're expanding. The record rally returns, but a counterpunch from the Bears could be lurking. We'll tell you why. Plus, a litter of golden retriever puppies playing in the snow. Look at how cute that is, except that ain't real. That was made by AI in less than an hour. We're going to show you more of this type of stuff coming up. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century. Right by you. Property and casualty coverages and render written and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available on all states. See policy for complete coverage details. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? 
Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. All right, now to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines and stories that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, listen to this. Lucid, the electric car maker, Lucid's board has approved a $6 million cash bonus for CEO Peter Rawlinson. That according to a new filing from the company. Board says the bonus is for Rawlinson's, quote, significant contributions to a milestone achievement with the unveiling of Lucid's Gravity SUV late last year. But investors in Lucid may see it differently. Rawlinson has been in charge since Lucid went public three years ago. Since then, the stock is... Run out of gas, so to speak. It's down 85%. 85% from its peak. Hey, there you go. All right, next up. Roku reporting a bigger-than-expected quarterly loss. It comes as the company faces lower customer spending and intense competition for the likes of Netflix and Amazon. Investors also apparently did not like Roku's profit forecast. As you can see, Roku's stock down 15% after hours. So is DoorDash. It's taken hit after hours. It posted an increase in revenue and says customers ordered more on its app last quarter than they did during the pandemic. <coughs> Cannabis. <coughs> but it didn't shrink its net losses as quickly as Wall Street expected. Still, the company's CFO is optimistic about the future. Here's what he told Overtime earlier. When I look at our results compared to peers, we are growing substantially faster, sometimes even three to five times faster than peers which is allowing us to gain share virtually in every market that we operate in. By the way, DoorDash, if you remember, we showed you the top, top pick stocks. DoorDash is a top pick of six different firms on Wall Street. In the meantime, shares of Coinbase are soaring after posting a blowout quarter. Kate Rooney following the earnings call. Kate, what did Brian Armstrong, the CEO, say that's making everybody just giddy? Yeah, Brian, I, Brian, another Brian Armstrong took a little bit of a victory lap tonight. He talked about cutting costs by 45 percent, said they were able to build products a lot faster with a much leaner team, which he said led to positive net income for the quarter. He kicked off the analyst call with a bit of a subtle dig at failed rivals like FTX, which went bankrupt, and Binance, which shut down here in the U.S. Coinbase has always taken a long term approach, focusing on building in a compliant manner, even when it wasn't the popular choice. Many of our competitors cut corners and broke laws to get big fast, and we've seen how that strategy played out. We have indeed. Coinbase reported a surprise profit thanks to soaring trading volume as Bitcoin markets recovered in the fourth quarter. Brought in $1.04 on EPS. That was compared to a loss of more than $2 just a year ago. It's also helped by higher interest income. It is still very much tied to the volatile crypto markets, which can be a good thing when Bitcoin's surging as it is this week, topping $52,000. But... It also works the opposite way when prices drop or trading dries up. Brian Armstrong also addressed Wall Street's fears about Bitcoin and that ETF taking volume away from Coinbase. You cannot trade those ETFs on Coinbase. Some have worried about what they call cannibalization. He says it's not a risk. He's called it a positive for the industry, said it's additive and that they're seeing elevated engagement and inflows across both retail and institutional trading this quarter. Coinbase is what's known as a custodian on these ETFs. It holds the Bitcoin. The underlying asset there, Armstrong saying that every institution is now starting to hold crypto. He said these asset classes will now be a standard part of every diversified portfolio. Says the financial system is officially 
adopting crypto, they did see a falling take rate, which is a measure of profitability. It was down by almost 1%. Executives said that was because there's now a higher pro uh, portion of professional traders. They tend to do more volume, but at a lower fee. He also talked about real world use cases for crypto beyond just trading. He says it still has not found what he called the iPhone moment for that industry, Brian. Back so the, to you. the Blackberry phase of crypto. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, your stock rally appears to be back on track. The S&P hitting another record close. The Dow added 300 points. The Nasdaq also closed in the green after Tesla and Meta posted big gains. Now, the late day rally comes two days after that hot inflation number sent stocks tumbling and everything was doomed. But now the Dow and the S&P are actually up on the week. The Nasdaq's got a little bit of work to do tomorrow. Joining us now is New York Life investment economist and chief market strategist, Lauren Goodwin. Lauren, do you remember where you were in the sell-off of three days ago? I mean, those were heady times. Those were indeed heady times, but I got to be honest with you, Brian, this is a market that makes a lot of sense to me. It's uncertain and it's volatile because the economic data is so mixed. But if we look through that mixed message, what we can see is that really what's happening is a mix of leading and lagging indicators. When we see housing still struggling, the manufacturing sector still struggling, profit margins just starting to squeeze, but the consumer still looking pretty good, think today's data was likely more of a of noise than signal. That's an environment that signals that the economy is more likely than not to continue slowing ahead. And so in this in-between time, I expect we will see volatility until data break more decisively in that direction. I, I don't want anyone to lose money. We like, you know what I mean? We, 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 we want people to make money, not lose money. But I will say this. I feel a little comforted in a weird way, Lauren, that stocks that miss, right, the guidance isn't good, the earnings weren't as good as some expected, go down. And I say that because it means the market is acting at least rationally in some respects, or at the minimum, at least paying attention to the underlying numbers and not just trading like a bunch of passive algorithms. Yeah, and that's particularly true, Brian, after a couple of months of pretty optimistic sentiment, markets going pretty much one direction like we saw after the Fed pivot rally in November. And in the environment where valuations have now moved quite a bit higher, what investors should be focused on is exactly what you're describing, real profitability, real free cash flow. Where are we seeing resilience in company operations? That's what gets you reliable return over the course of several months as opposed to several days. And so as we continue to move through this earnings season, we're looking at those factors. We're also looking at the areas of the market where there's potentially more secular investment theme that can build that resilience as well. Lauren Goodwin, New York Life. Really appreciate it. Uh, and more numbers to come. Lauren, thank you. Let's wait till NVIDIA drops. That's going to be wow. All right. Now, let's take a look under the market hood. Two new names making some headlines. The big winner of the day, Zebra Technologies. They popped 12%, like we just talked about. Strong guidance. The big decliner, West Pharmaceutical, down 14%. Bad earnings guides. What we just talked about. Good news, stock up. Bad news, stock down. Actually, kind of rational. All right, on deck. After many pundits said it is dead, is Elon Musk bringing X back to life while one big entrepreneur seems to be saying yes? Plus, why don't you take a look at your screen? Look at that adorable little cat. It's not little, it's actually kind of chubby. 
Well, that is not a real cat. That is not a real person. That video was generated almost instantly using AI. It's part of a debut taking tech by storm. More videos like this to blow your mind ahead. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back. Elon Musk getting a little love from Reddit founder Alexis Ohanian. In a post on X, Ohanian wrote last night, quote, Elon Musk told everybody he was going to build the Everything app. And month by month, they have progressively been shipping the products and partnerships to bring this to fruition. And now, sports betting. That post in reference to X, formerly known as Twitter, now partnering with BetMGM to bring sports betting to the social media app. But is that praise justly deserved? With us tonight for more is 1789 Capital founder Omid Malik, and he's investing in ventures on X. And Vanity Fair contributing editor Bethany McLean. She's also a CNBC contributor. And Omid, you know as well as I do, Musk paid $44 billion. Fidelity keeps writing down. They, they wrote it up, but the value of X has come down considerably. It did get a little bit of a boost in the private markets by Fidelity about a month ago. Still well below where he paid some people have said X is dead. How do you see this? I mean, I actually think it completely the opposite, as you're aware. He has resurrected X or Twitter. Um, the fidelity evaluation, as you rightfully point up, was up 11% in December. But more importantly, just so we understand the fidelity thing, those are often done for 4i9a evaluations, which are meant to undercut uh, valuations for various purposes instead of making your stock look cheaper. So that's not necessarily the best metric to look at. What you want to look at is kind of what Ohanian is pointing out and many of us have for a while. Just on the micro side, I'll be brief. Obviously, we have companies that use X. People know that we invested in Tucker Carlson for his new media outfit. Uh, when I look at the success that Tucker has had on X, it's actually mind-blowing and it cannot be discounted. The Putin interview alone has over 200 million impressions. So when you think about the scale of that, uh, and now as we start rolling out advertisements on that platform, we doubled the amount of what people pay $7 million for a minute on the Super Bowl. So, I mean, that alone is just exquisite. And one of our other portfolio companies that I've talked to you about in the past, Public Square, that I took public uh, through one of my SPACs and still on the board of, has experienced a 10x return uh, since Musk has taken over on distribution mm -hmm. on X uh, versus you know 1.0. And as I said before, 1.0 lost respectively in the final two years before Musk took it over a billion dollars and then $200 million. So, I mean, people need to, to really put that in perspective when they look at what he's building, which we can get into. And one other thing, too, Bethany, is that when Facebook Meta came out with Threads, all the pundits came out and said, well, Threads is, Threads is the new king. Twitter, then it was known, is dead. Uh, I started a Threads account, by the way, at Brian Sullivan. I've tried to get traction. It's, it's tough. There's people say, go back to X or whatever it might be. And I've noticed some pretty big name people that said they were abandoning Twitter. They went to Threads. Some of them have started to pop back up 
on X. So I feel like the momentum has kind of shifted back that way. So count me skeptical per usual. As I said the last time I was on, if if Threads were the killer app, then Twitter Twitter would be done. It's not. Twitter X has X has a chance, um, and I would never I would never count Musk out. And uh, but if if Omid is right, the the these things should start to show up in the metrics at some point. Advertisers should start coming back if they really are getting a 10 times return and those numbers are there to be proven, then advertisers in the end aren't really going to care about, about whatever Musk says and does. They'll come back. They're not coming back yet. You're going to start seeing average monthly users growing if the platform's offerings are really that compelling. You're not seeing that yet. You're going to start seeing profits at some point. You're not seeing that yet. So I'm waiting to see these big picture metrics before I'm willing to say that X has come back. And I think some of Musk's plans for it sound a little bit like an entrepreneur's nostalgia for the world of 25 years ago, where you didn't have all these companies with killer apps in these areas, particularly payments. I mean, what is going to get somebody to abandon PayPal other than perhaps Apple Pay, where you can argue that Apple used its hardware advantage um, to make incursions on, on PayPal? But consumer loyalty is really, really consumer behavior is really hard to change on payment apps. How how does how does how does X really come up with an alternative that's going to move the needle? Again, I'm not counting him out. I just want to see some proof in the big in the big picture numbers. Well, Omid, answer that question. How how does X do it? How do they take that next level? How do they become the next Venmo or whatever? Well, the first step is to have stuff that's going to draw people to want to use the app. So as I pointed out, he's doing that through the use, as you guys pointed out, with sports betting, sports arrangements with the WWE. Media consumption, as we all know on this call, has changed dramatically. People are now consuming their content, not necessarily just on cable news, but using their phones. So when you look at Tucker Carlson, Tulsi Gabbard, Don Lemon, Jim Rome, all of these original programming, that in of itself is not the reason why he's doing it. He's doing to get people to interact with the app. He's moved to also adding subscriptions to diversify from the issues with revenue that Bethany's pointing out on advertising. So he generates subscription revenue, and then he moves it on to payments where he's already rolling out. Now he's going to start using it for phone calls. One of the things we haven't talked about, and I don't think we're giving him any credit for, is Grok, which is the AI platform that he's building. We all know that artificial intelligence is all the rage on Wall Street. He has, and you're only as good as the data that you're building the AI on, arguably the largest trove of proprietary data that any AI could be built on, which is X, which is over 300 million people giving the way that they communicate. So think about the power of which he's building his AI platform on, which contrasts dramatically to anything that Meta may have or Microsoft. I mean, X or Twitter really is an amazing proprietary channel to do that. Um, And I think that's another area that we haven't talked about that deserves attention. Well, we will. We'll get you back because we actually have a segment on AI that was pretty much launched by Sam Altman on X today. So if you wanted to see it, you had to go to X. And that that's, I think, the kind of stuff that you both are talking about. But long way to go. Bethany and Omid, really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up. John McClain might say, welcome to the party, pal. By one Wall Street bank is finally saying bye on one of the hottest stocks out there. Plus, busting budgets. A stunning report reveals the cost of the migrant crisis on some of the largest American cities. It's not political. It's S&P Global's own estimates. And they're ahead.
All right, time for your last call watch list. And it is a stock that appears to be the new favorite of all you traders out there. What else but super microcomputer? SMCI is a rocket ship lately. Shares in the stratosphere up 250% just this year. It is now trading at about $1,000 a share after beginning the year under 300. And this San Jose, California-based company was trading between 20 and 40 bucks until the middle of last year. 20 to 1,000 in about three years. Today's jump, thanks in part to Bank of America, initiating coverage on the stock with a $1,040 target, calling it a buy. Analysts there say that AI, what else, is driving a meaningful shift in the server market. Bank of America also cites early launch partners like NVIDIA, AMD, and Intel leaving SMCI poised to capitalize on a major need for high-powered servers. One issue, we're told, I have no idea personally, that hurts servers and storage is throttling caused by overheating. They get hot, they do worse, and apparently Supermicro has a lot more cooling options than some of its competitors. Obviously, time will tell what happens with the stock. It's up tenfold in a year. It is up again right now. It may keep going up, but I've got to say it. Just be careful out there, folks. Nothing goes up forever. It just doesn't happen. It never has happened. It won't happen. And it'll keep going up until it doesn't. I hope you make money on it. Just be vigilant. In the meantime, the economic side of the migrant crisis, putting a major financial strain on some cities. According to a new report from S&B Global, it is only going to get worse in places like New York, Chicago, and Denver. New York expected to spend over $9 billion in the next two years on the migrant crisis, feeding, housing, etc., $4.2 billion in 20 this year and $4.9 billion next year. To put things into perspective, that is comparable to how much New York is expected to spend this year on the fire department, sanitation, and parks and recreation departments combined. So how can cities handle the cost of this crisis? Joining us now is S&P Global Ratings Director of Local Governments. That is Felix Winnikins. Felix, you know, whenever we talk about this, it gets politicized. That's not what we're doing right now. We're talking about just the pure cost of this serious issue. Are we not? And I just don't know where New York City is going to get the money or Chicago or Denver unless there is some kind of massive federal aid or bailout package. How do you see it? Yeah. Good evening, Brian, and thanks a lot for having me on. I mean, you've already mentioned the numbers in your intro, four and a half, $4.2 billion in New York City in fiscal year 2024, the current fiscal year that's going up to $4.9 billion next year. That That is roughly 4.5% of the city spending next year. So it's a, it's a pretty significant chunk of money. For New York City in particular, the economy is still doing well, so the city is taking in more in taxes, which helps offset these higher costs, but the city also had to cut its budget. It announced a 5% budget cut in November of 2023 and another budget cut in the uh, preliminary budget, which was just published in January. So budget cuts is one way to solve this. The other is, of course, getting aid from either the federal government or the state government. The state has actually pledged over a billion for fiscal year 2024 and another at least 1.1 billion in fiscal year 2025. So that's certainly helping. 
from the federal government, not so much. The federal government has spent a few hundred millions, uh, but that's more or less a drop in the bucket when you look at this. Is, is there any way that places like Chicago, which was already in deep financial trouble beforehand, and New York, Denver, and others, is there any way they can get through this absent a federal bailout if they don't get a credit rating cut? I, I don't see how you and some of your competitors ultimately just say, you're not as credit worthy as you used to be because your costs are so high. I mean, I think it depends ultimately on a couple of factors. One is, of course, the economy. Like I said, right now, tax revenues are still holding up pretty nicely. To, so to the extent that the economic recovery continues, that certainly helps on the revenue side. On the expenditure side, cities have to tackle both the migrant-related costs so that's something we've seen in New York City. They've been able to bring down the cost uh, that they're spending on the migrant and asylum seekers down significantly. But they also have to continue making cuts elsewhere in the budget to maintain budgetary balance. So there is a way through this without additional federal support, but it includes potentially painful cuts. The other thing um, that I want to mention is that, of course, it also depends on how many more migrants are coming to these cities and whether we'll see some kind of solution along the southern border that will help reduce the flow to these cities. Well, it doesn't appear that there's there's going to be, and uh, we'll see what happens. It is an eco- it's a human story. It is an economic story as well, and a very tough time Absolutely. for New York, Chicago, and others. Felix Winnikens, we appreciate it. S&P Global, thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up on a lighter note, it may be the craziest leap forward in AI yet. Okay, again, these are not real people having lunch. These are deep fakes that were generated nearly instantly. More of this and what comes next coming up. All right, welcome back. Are you sitting down? Well, if not, sit down. And if you're driving and listening on the radio, well, you're going to have to check this out on X and our social media feeds later on today. OpenAI has introduced a new tool that, well, you know what? Judge for yourself. It's called Sora. It allows users to turn simple text prompts into video. And quickly, here's some examples. Type in a beautiful snowy Tokyo city that's bustling. Look at this. The camera then moves to the city, follows several fake people, enjoying fake beautiful snow and shopping at fake beautiful stalls. Gorgeous Sakura petals sprinkling down through the wind along with snowflakes. All right, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman showed off the tool, asking followers on where else, X, to send him prompts to create some wild scenes. We asked him, he didn't respond. I wanted a news anchor that was uh, infested with koalas. That's hat tip to Mitch Hedberg. But somebody said, how about two golden retrievers podcasting on top of a mountain? A short time later, this was produced. I don't know what they're talking about. You see the bone? I don't see the bone. It's down there. You see a bone? I don't know. You see a bone? Anyway, it's not perfect, of course. The prompt asked for the video, something about a gray wolf, pups, but then they kind of came out of thin air. OpenAI says it's an early weakness, especially if the scene has got a lot going on. Now, the service can only create a maximum of a minute of video right now and is not available publicly yet. You can't play with it. But wow. And there are many more to check out on Sam Altman's X feed and their website. Definitely check them out after the show. So is this the beginning of the end for the media business? Am I done? 
With us tonight from Horse Tabula founder and CEO Adam Singolda. I mean, listen, the videos, Adam, they're not perfect. Okay, hands move a little bit weird. It's, it, but we all have to agree. It's mind-blowing. It's amazing. Our minds are blown. We actually, two guys that like to talk literally are just paralyzed. We can't, here's another video. Someone said, show me a, a woman in a longer coat walking through a rainy night street in Tokyo. And I want to make sure, Adam, that our audience understands these videos are created by computers, not humans, in less than an hour. Are we going to have human beings in TV commercials in a year? I mean, I think what, what's, you know, what, what's to take here from, from video, you know, you mentioned commercial, is that this is really a huge, you know, moment in time for the advertising industry because we have to remember that creating a video ad is very, very expensive. It's an experience that's left for usually the bigger brands. So that means that as of now, you have millions of advertisers, millions of small businesses and mid-sized businesses who never advertised in video, and now they could. And, you know, this is also great timing because, you know, as you know, with Disney and Amazon and Uber and DoorDash and Netflix, everyone is launching their advertising model one way or another. So this will be, you know, which will be a trillion dollar market in a few years, I believe. So the, the you know, the, this announcement today and the rebirth of video advertising now available for everyone is really good timing. And um, I think the main question to me will be how will OpenAI, you know, compensate all these creators and publishers that they use to train their models. There's gonna be a lot of things like that that have to work out. I think it's like driverless cars. You can make the 95%, it's that last 5%, Adam, that's the hardest part to sort of get over the, the hurdle. There's all these things that need to work out. This is partly the reason for the writer strikes and the actor strikes in Hollywood. You could have some, you know, some, some fake AI thing called Prad Bit, right? Or something like that <laughs> that looks just enough like Brad Pitt. And I do also wonder, Adam, and I'm, I'm saying this probably more out of hope than anything else, that people connect with humans. Will we connect with this? I, I think we can. I, I, I think it's going to be it's going to be good enough. It's going to get better and better. Um, the main question would be, you know, how do we make sure that we're not hurting people? You know, as it relates to misinformation, and you know, is it real? And you know, gaslighting. And look, we've been here before. We've seen what happened with social media. When you have companies that have huge distribution, you know, 2 billion people logging in every day. Um, it's not about, you know, just one video being good or bad, fake or not. It's about what happens when you put that onto the pipeline and now you get to push it out to millions of people. To me, that's the main question we should ask ourselves. You know, what is the responsibility that platforms will be required to have to protect all of us so that, you know, we don't get to see videos that are uh, potentially I also worry about the TikTokization of it in a sense that the algorithms take over. You know, it's like music now. Everything is derivative, right? It's like every song sounds like the, the, the previous hit song because it's that's what people want. And then so we just kind of create the same thing, get movies, you know, the seventh and eighth installment. I hope it doesn't take the creativity, the human sort of experimentation aspect of it and be, in other words, Adam, too smart for its own good. Yeah, I think, you know, I trust humans, you know, at the end of the day, people make the decisions that they need to be making, right? Like we have so much more content online now with streaming, but we know we choose the things we like. 
um, and it's a better user experience at the end of the day. I'm not concerned about that. I think eventually people make decisions that are the right decisions for them. I think we'll have more jobs because of this, because it's going to, you know, drive the market to be fall in love with video. My ex feed today, all videos, I'm sure yours as well. I mean, we're going to see videos so much more uh, as consumers, as publishers, as advertisers. So I think this is a great moment in time for the advertising industry. I am a bit more concerned than you, Brian, you know, about the publishers, because I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we have to compensate them. You know, it's one thing to borrow publishers' articles mm -hmm. to train your models. But I mean, now we're training the, you know, models under videos, you know, the diamonds of the publishers' industry. So, you know, I do think this is still um, a big issue. We see the New York Times lawsuit, right? People want to be paid. Yeah, and, we're, and they're not perfect. You saw some leg issues with those pups that we just had on the screen. But if this is now, Adam, I just wonder what it's going to look like in a year or two from now. Adam Singolda, Tabula, Adam, appreciate it. Wow, just look at these videos. Let's run those. Thanks, Brian. Better than me. All right. They're cute. Yeah, they, they are. I'm not. So there you go. Coming up, college <laughs> basketball superstar Caitlin Clark shooting for history tonight. And you will not believe the flood of money around it. Plus, during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here is Bret Hart, United Airlines president, sharing his story. There is always this sense that you are not complete and your journey is not complete unless you are also giving back and you are helping others accomplish their, their goals in life and that you are making sure that you keep a connection with the community. Um, that is one of the things that I treasure most um, about my journey and that I treasure most about our heritage. The attention of the entire college basketball world will be on a big game tonight, and it is not Duke versus UNC. We are minutes away from the opening tip-off of Michigan versus Iowa women's teams because all eyes are going to be on basketball sensation Caitlin Clark. She is just eight points away from breaking the all-time women's NCAA scoring record based on her in-game averages. She'll probably get that record in the first quarter, if not early second quarter. By the way, the game... Streaming exclusively on Peacock. Now, ticket prices for the game, if you want to go, have gone through the roof. The get-in price, the worst seat, one behind some post. Just to watch Clark tonight is $254, including fees. For context, that is about 20 times more expensive than the cheapest seat to tonight's NBA game between the Bucks and the Grizzlies. For more on this, let's bring in sports business analyst Joe Pompliano, an investor of Pomp Investments and the host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast. I love it. Caitlin Clark, uh, arguably, I'll say this. I, I know who Caitlin Clark is more than I know any male superstar in college basketball right now. Thanks for having me, Brian. And that's exactly what I was going to say, is that Caitlin Clark is the biggest star in all of college basketball, men's or women's, right now. And it's really not an exaggeration because the data backs it up. I'll give you two examples. The ticketing platform TickPick says that to get into a Northwestern women's college basketball game, the average price that they see on their platform is around $10. But when Iowa and Caitlin Clark came to town, the average ticket price jumped all the way up to $250. That's one stat. The second one, which I think is actually more impressive, is that Iowa is going to play 32 games this year. 
30 of them will have been played in front of either sold-out crowds or record-breaking attendance for that specific venue. The only two games that aren't going to be breaking the record were played more than 1,000 miles away in Florida at a neutral site during Thanksgiving. So it's not even just attendance. The viewership numbers are up tremendously, too. And Caitlin Clark and the attention that she's brought to the sport has made everyone a lot of money with new media rights deals as well. Yeah. NCAA, eight-year deal, $920 million for women's basketball. Arguably, what could this set off, Joe? Like, you got Caitlin Clark, have other big stars, arguably the, the, the U.S. women's national soccer team has had way more success than the men's team has had as well. We're going to start to see the Olympics, of course, this summer. It feels like there's a lot of positive momentum and as the father of a recruited D1 athlete, female athlete, I'm happy to see it. Yeah, women's sports are obviously on fire right now in this country. Every data point proves it from sponsorships to media rights and everything else in between. But you mentioned the new deal that the the uh, college basketball landscape got with ESPN recently. And I think the most interesting part about that is if you look at the prior deal, that deal covered about 29 championships across men's and women's sports and was paying the NCAA about $35 million per year. And I tell you this to give you some context on the new deal, which just for the women's college basketball championship rights in this new deal, they're going to be getting paid six. million a year. So it's Mm. roughly double the old deal for just one sport. They had 10 million viewers for the national championship game last year. And last week, Iowa had 1.8 million viewers on Fox, which was the most watched women's college basketball game of all time on that network. The sport is on fire right now, and it's only going to get bigger. Yeah, and I love it. She's from Iowa, West Des Moines. She plays for Iowa. She's not one of these players like enters the transfer portal every year, and they have four schools and in four years. This is good for Iowa. It's good for basketball. It's good for women's basketball. My Hokies are ranked number 12. It's all good. Joe Pompliano, good to see you. Thank you very much. All right. You know what happened 74 years ago today? The animated movie Cinderella hit the silver screen. Who can forget this iconic scene when the princess got her new dress? Oh, it's a beautiful dress. Now, Walt Disney once said that was one of his favorite pieces of animation ever. Cinderella was a sensation and Disney's biggest hit since Snow White in 1937. The movie banked more than $93 million worldwide back then. That is more than half a billion dollars in today's dollars. There you go. A lot of money there. Iconic scenes. Good luck to Caitlin Clark in Iowa tonight and the record. The game streams live exclusively on Peacock in like five seconds. We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Take is next. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages and render written and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details.